Hey, welcome to the podcast of C3 Los Angeles. I'm Jake Sweetman, and together with my wife, Nicole, we lead this church. We're glad you're here, and we pray that wherever you're tuning in from, that you are encouraged and strengthened by this word. Here's today's message. If you brought a Bible to church, why don't you turn with me to the uh, Gospel of Luke? I'm going to be in chapter 2, and we'll open up by reading verses 1 uh, to 12. And it says this, in those days, and the days that it's talking about are the days just before the birth of Jesus. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This is the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria. And so as a result of this decree that Caesar gave, everyone went to their own town to register. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea to Bethlehem, the town of David because he belonged to the house and the line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger, and because there was no guest room available for them, and there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them. So this is, you know, kind of a major life event, I guess you could say. And they were terrified, as you would be. But the angel said to them, do not be afraid. I bring you good news. Everyone say good news. Yeah, I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today, in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you, but not just any old Savior. No, this Savior is the Messiah, the Lord. And this will be a sign to you. Here's how you're going to know that you found what you're looking for when you go into the town of Bethlehem. You're going to find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. That's how you know that you found a Savior the Messiah, the Lord, he's going to be a baby in a barn lying in a manger. How incredible. The title of this message today is simple. It's this. It's the good news of God. The reason I love Christmas so much is because, because of the central truth that springs out of the Christmas story. And that truth is what Christians call the incarnation, which is a big theological word. It helps if you say it out loud. Say it with me. Say incarnation. Incarnate. Yeah, incarnate is really simple. It just means in flesh. And it's about God's totally mesmerizing choice to take on flesh and bone and come to us in the person of Jesus Christ. And this he did for a very specific purpose, and that purpose was to rescue us from our sin and to rescue us from sin's penalty, which is death, and then to redeem us into abundant and eternal life. Now, this is not an overpromise when I say that if you gain insight today into just what God has done for you in the person of Jesus Christ, you will quite literally never be the same. The outcome of that will be that you live with a wonder and a hope about your life that you did not have before. And not just life for here and now, but life for all of eternity. Because when you receive the gift of God in Jesus Christ, that is the outcome is nothing less than receiving God himself. 
And even more than that, it's being received by God himself. So that you get to enter into and experience and enjoy the very life of God. This is what the incarnation is all about. Let's look at a simple definition that I have on the screen for you that will just help us understand a bit more about why the incarnation changes the entire trajectory of human history. Here's what happened that God, without ever ceasing to be God, actually became what he created in order to reconcile us to himself. In other words, Jesus at once came to us and was fully God, yet also fully man. Now, there's a lot in that short little sentence, but the most foundational truth to grasp at first is that the incarnation is the arrival of none other than God himself into and amongst humanity. As poor shepherds out there in the field are hanging out at night, just them and their sheep, and then all of a sudden this light appears and there's an angel. And the angel says to them, I bring you good news of great joy. The Savior, the Messiah, the Lord is born to you this day. Now that, that is good news for a lot of reasons, and we'll talk about a, a couple of them. But the first reason it's good news is because God in Jesus Christ has officially arrived into human history And here's the first point of the message. God is the good news. Before there was anything in creation to point at and call good, before you could look at stars and constellations and galaxies, before you could gaze up at the universe, before you could point to beautiful trees and waterfalls and and look at anything in nature and call it good, before you could do that, God was good. Before God had even uh, conceived of his plan of salvation and redemption for humanity, there was God, and God all by himself is good. God is the original good news. Here's the reason why. The Bible teaches us that God is one God in three indivisible, meaning joined together, yet at the same time distinct persons. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. These three are co-eternal with one another, which is just a fancy word that means that none of them came before the others. They've always existed together for eternity, indivisibly, yet also distinct. And that's why Christians call God the Trinity. Now, this, of course, is always going to be somewhat of a mystery to us on this side of heaven. But what is clear about God is that because he is Trinity... That means that he is eternally relational. He's never not been three in one and one in three. Which means that God's life, the life of God, is not static. God's life is not existing in isolation. No, God's life is eternally communal, vibrant, and overflowing. So if the outcome of the gospel is to enter into and enjoy the abundant life of God, then that means that God, who has always experienced that life within himself, is the good news. For all of eternity, he has enjoyed the life that you were created to participate in and that you get to experience when you are reconciled to him in Jesus Christ. See, this is why God offers you something called eternal life. 
And the reason God can offer you eternal life is because he has eternal life within himself. And you can only ever give out of what you have. Years later, after Jesus was born, lived, died, and rose again, Paul, on reflecting upon the gospel, called it the gospel of the glory of the blessed God. The good news of God. The original good news is God in all of his glory. So God is both the beginning of the good news and God is the aim. He is the end of the good news. I think that this holds more gravity for us when we consider it, not just in terms of God's life, generally speaking, but when we consider some of God's attributes. You see, the Bible says that God is love. And this is true, not because God can love or because God has a propensity to be loving, but because God is himself love. Before the creation of time, he was love. He will always be love, which means that the only way to truly know love is to know God because love originates in God. Apart from God, love does not exist. But because God exists and has always existed, that means that love exists and has always existed. Now, you and I, we experience something that we call love when we're apart from God, but it's distorted and it's not altogether satisfying. Sometimes it's even destructive. And some of you here today, you have been the victim of that kind of love. And the really deceptive thing about that sort of love is that it fills you just enough to make you keep wanting more. But you never get full. And so you always feel empty. But the love of God is altogether different. You have to understand that God's love is not just a better version of the love that we know. No, God is actually the only real version of love after which everything else is mere shadow or even something else entirely that's disguised and dressed up as love. But those who are reconciled to God get to experience his love. In fact, even the act of reconciliation, Jesus coming and dying on the cross was itself an act of love. And those who believe in him, who embrace that act of reconciliation as something done for them, the, the Bible says that they get made into new creations. They get transformed from the inside out so that they themselves now become vessels, houses of the love of God to live in. God didn't just demonstrate his love to you through Jesus Christ, his life, his death, his resurrection, but he is now, in fact, the Bible says, through his Holy Spirit poured out his love into his people. The only reason that God can do that, the only reason that God can demonstrate his love and give his love is because God is love. Because you can only ever give out of what you have. And the reason he has it is because he is it. And the reason he is love is because he is Trinity. You see, what that means when you consider the fact that God has always existed as triune, that means that at no time did God ever discover an object worth loving and therefore learned how to love. 
Because God is Trinity, that means that he did not need to create us in order to discover what it was to love somebody. You see, love for God was not an abstraction that he could conceptualize of, but only ever really learned how to do once he met you and I. See, what I'm trying to tell you is that God never learned how to love, and so he's never needed to get better at it. And because he's never needed to get better at it, he's never going to get worse at it. Because God doesn't just know how to love, God is love within himself. And that is the love that has been poured upon you and I in Jesus Christ. He is Father and Son and Holy Spirit. He's always known perfect love and shared that love mutually amongst himself. So no wonder we can say that God is the good news. No wonder we can join with the psalmist who wrote in Psalm 63 and verse 3 that your love is better than life. And that's why my lips glorify you. Now you don't even need to just stop at love. You could just go on down the list and do all the attributes of God. The scriptures speak of something called the fruit of the Holy Spirit. I put them all on a slide for you so that you could just look at them. Love and joy, peace and patience and kindness and goodness, faithfulness, gentleness and self-control. These are the qualities of God. It's not an exhaustive list, but these are some qualities by which we know God's character. And so we have to understand, once we understand that God is Trinity, is that God doesn't just have joy, God is eternally joyful. God doesn't just momentarily experience peace. God is eternally peaceful. He is kind and faithful. He is all of these things totally perfected amongst himself. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. God is constant, not in an unexciting sense or or in the sense that he's lacking in dynamic. It's exactly the opposite, that God is the actual fullness of everything your soul desires for an eternity. God is every Everything that the world keeps disappointing you over because it is incapable of providing something that it does not have because those things do not originate in them. You see, the consistency of God's character and nature is as ancient and eternal as Him. As one theologian put it, God always does who He is. And He is always who He is. In a world where the ground is constantly changing beneath our feet, it is good news to know that God is unfathomably, yet also beautifully, predictably good. Of course, we can't adequately put words to this, except to say that when we consider God, we use the word to describe him, that he himself uses. And we say that God is holy. He is a standard unto himself. He is immeasurable in his perfection and purity, and he is totally lacking in any form of defect. In other words, he's he's not really like any one of us. God is holy because he's eternal and uncreated, And therefore, he is completely distinct from his creation. Nothing and no one else is like God. And nothing and no one in all of creation, visible or invisible, could ever reveal God to us, could ever make God known to us for the simple reason that creation is not God. 
Only the holy God, totally distinct, only the holy God could reveal the holy God. Which brings a whole new depth of awe to what the angel called Jesus when he announced to Mary that she would give birth to the Messiah. In Luke 1.35, the angel says that the Holy Spirit will come on you, Mary, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you, so that the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God, the Holy One. You see, in Jesus Christ, we have the Holy God revealing himself, the Holy God. About 30 years later, the disciples of Jesus will have a revelation, an epiphany, if you like. And they will say in John 6 and verse 69 that we have come to believe and to know that you are the Holy One of God. That is the belief and the knowledge that God is waiting for all of us to step into. Jesus Christ is not just a man. He is the God-man. He is the Holy One of God. Jesus himself made it explicitly clear in John 10.30. He said this simple little statement. I and the Father are one. Because God, without ever ceasing to be God, became a man in order that we could be reconciled to him. That man is Jesus Christ. And that's why Jesus also, point number two, is such good news. You see, the gospel cannot be fully described by simply saying that God is the good news. Because God is good news unto himself. In being the triune God, He has everything that he, if I could use the word, needs. Because he is the complete package, friends and family. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are lacking in nothing. God is not, he's not desperate for relationship because he has relationship. He is the good news. But in order for the good news to become good news for us, the good news had to come to us. And that's exactly who Jesus is. He is not just the Son of God. He is God the Son, the second person of the Trinity who has come to us and bringing the good news with him. And that's why we call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. It's why he's named Jesus. Because Jesus means God saves. And that's exactly who Jesus is. He is God who came to save his people from their sin. Hear that. Jesus came to save you from your sin. Sometimes we can lose sight of just how sinful we are and we can convince ourselves that by comparison, I'm pretty good. But friends, comparison only ever works when you compare down. If you were to take a moment and compare up to the triune God, you would determine I'm not doing all that great. And so Jesus came with the good news of who he is so that you may enter into his life, be forgiven of your sin. He came to save you. Now, the way that he did this is both quite simple and a profound mystery, that Jesus came from eternity and voluntarily subjected himself to the full gamut of the human experience. And when he did this, he did it to vicariously, that means he stood in your place, he vicariously represented you and I 
to the Father. His whole life. The Bible says that uh, he was tempted to sin in every way that we are. Yet he was without sin. So where you and I and every single human being before us failed to remain faithful to the eternally faithful God, Jesus came and succeeded. But it wasn't just sin that Jesus overcame. Jesus also overcame the deepest and the darkest of trials. And he did it all while remaining holy, faithful to God. It is absolutely impossible to overstate just how well acquainted with grief Jesus was. He was ridiculed, rejected, ostracized, wrongly accused, illegally tried, falsely convicted, beaten, whipped, spat upon, forced to carry a Roman wooden cross up a hill upon which he was then fixed with an iron spike through his feet and two through his hands. And on that cross, the Bible says that he, he was taking the curse of our sin upon himself. In fact, more than that, the scriptures say that in some mysterious way, he became our sin so that you and I could become the righteousness of God. He satisfied his own holy justice in judging sin with death so that you and I could become the righteousness of God because Jesus' perfectly righteous life was attributed to us. Which is to say that Jesus Christ should not just be understood as God with you. Jesus Christ must also, also sufficiently be understood as God as you. God came as a human. And he lived as a human. The life that you and I are incapable of living. Perfect faithfulness to God. He achieved that. And then he died as a man. So that God's just judgment for man's sin could be fulfilled. So that in and through Jesus Christ, God both brilliantly judged and justified humanity. And then because Jesus defeated death by his resurrection, he ushers us into eternal life. And that eternal life is not some amorphous, nebulous thing. It's, it's not some force that exists out in the great by and by that you and I get to discover one day. No, life can only ever be life when it's attached to the life of a being. So when Jesus says, I came to give you eternal life, he's not talking about sending you off into some amorphous thing in space. He's talking about bringing you into the life of God. And the life of God is the only eternal life because the Father, the Son, Son and the Holy Spirit have always existed three in one and one in three with one another, not in static, boring life, but in communal, relational, beautiful, vibrant, overflowing life. And that's the life that Jesus Christ brings you into. What hope of eternity have you apart from him? You have none. Our only hope of eternity is in and through Jesus Christ. So that through him, we don't just know about God. We know him and are known by him. We're joined to Jesus. And we're actually joined to the life of God. So that we get to share in that eternal, perfect love, endless joy, and unshakable peace. This is how Jesus said it in John 15, 9. And I'll close with this. 
Jesus' statement is marvelous, so short and so profound. Listen to what he says. He says, as the Father has loved me, as the Father has loved me, we have to ask the question, how has the Father loved the Son? He has loved him for all of eternity. That's how the Father has loved the Son, and the Son has loved the Father. They have been in love for eternity. So as the Father has loved me, wow, that is profound. So have I loved you. So Jesus says, the holy love that I have shared in for all of eternity, I have now bestowed upon you. What is that love? It's not a learned love. It's not a love that Jesus is kind of figuring out as he goes, learning to like you a bit more each and every day. The love that Jesus has bestowed upon you is not like a good indie record where you listen the first time and you're like, yeah, it's kind of okay, but then it grows on you over time and then all of a sudden it's your favorite. It's not like that. The love that Jesus has bestowed upon you is not the equivalent of learning to like wine. You're like, ah, I'm not so sure, and then you can't get enough. Maybe slow it down, okay? It's not like that. The love of God that Jesus has loved you with is a love that originates in God himself, a love that has existed for all of eternity and will exist for all of eternity. That's the love that he has poured out upon us. And here's the invitation. Jesus says it, so remain in my love. You see, love isn't something that you have to go out and find. You don't need to seek for it and search for it. Look high and low. Go from partner to partner to partner and job to job to job and place to place looking for something to be derived from a person, place, or thing that has no business offering it in the first place and doesn't have the power to give it. The love that your soul craves, not just for here and now, but for all of eternity, is found in Jesus Christ. And the good news is that you don't have to go looking for Him because He already came looking for you. You don't have to go looking for holiness. Holiness is found simply by receiving the Holy One of God who came to humanity and remaining in His love. You see, there is no way to properly understand what Christians call salvation apart from Christmas, apart from the incarnation of Jesus Christ. Sometimes we can think of biblical notions like like forgiveness of sins or the offer of eternal life is like these independent things that, that God has sent to us like a package in the mail and they exist independently and disconnected from Him. And so our job is to try and grab a hold of those gifts and keep a hold of those gifts and make sure that we don't lose them or damage them. It's like the equivalent of my four-year-old opening presents on Christmas Day and I know she's going to break them within a week. That's what we think God's gifts to us are like. Better do our best. But it is infinitely better than that. The incarnation says so. You see, it's a little bit like the difference between if you and I were drowning and God chose to either A, throw us a lifesaver or B, jump in after us. If God threw us the lifesaver, it's up to us to grab onto it and hold onto it and make sure that we don't let go while those violent waves are threatening to bring us down and, and tow us under. 
But if God jumps in after us, well then now He's the one who grabs a hold and keeps a hold. He's the one who brings us to safety. The incarnation of Jesus Christ is God jumping in the ocean. And those waves were violent. He got wet when He got in. The Bible says that He got in. He went to the cross. Why? Because you being reconciled to Him, the Scriptures make it explicit, was a joy. Now imagine that. That the one who has experienced the fullness of joy within himself for all of eternity still counted your salvation as a joy worth having. That's the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that joy is made more and more complete every time somebody understands that Jesus is not just God come into human history. He is God who comes into human hearts. How does He do that? That beautiful third member of the Trinity called the Holy Spirit. Mystical reality. I know that you can feel Him here in the room. Some of you, He's knocking. And let me in. He also comes with all the fullness of God. That the life of God would take up residence in you. See, I'm, I'm not holy enough. I know. That's why He's the Holy Spirit. He makes you holy enough. He makes you a vessel worthy to be the home of the life of God. Jesus Christ has already joined Himself to humanity. And now the offer is for every man, woman, and child to join themselves to Him in return. Paul says it like this. And this is my last verse, I promise. Galatians 2.20. It's an amazing invitation. He says, I've been crucified with Christ and I no longer live. What's that revelation? That's the revelation that Jesus Christ had so identified himself with us that Paul says it might as well have been me on the cross. He didn't just die for me, he died as me. And so my penalty's been paid. And now Christ lives in me. His Holy Spirit has taken up residence in me. And this is so true, Paul says, that the life I now live in the body, I'm just living by faith in the Son of God. My life is totally identified with Him. Why? Because He loved me. Pay attention to the tense. It's very specific. Paul doesn't just say that He loves me. He does. No, no, Paul has something in mind here. He loved me. When did He love me? He loved me on the cross when He gave Himself for me. So this is the invitation of Christ. The book of James says it like this. Become a friend of God's. He's already a friend of yours. You've been listening to the C3 Los Angeles podcast. If you found today's message helpful, we encourage you to share it with a friend and consider rating it. If you'd like more information about our church or details on how to get connected to a neighborhood group, head to c3losangeles.com. We love you. Thanks for tuning in with us.